Hey everyone, thank you for joining us again. This is Suffer Map. My name is Tyler. I'm here with my friend Matthew. Uh, we wanted to give you guys a quick introduction to our next episode before we jump into it. Um, we've got a, some housekeeping and some special notes for you. So, uh, Matthew, kick it off. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm really excited to present this interview with my really good friend Nathaniel. We had an awesome time hanging out and just talking about one of his works. Um, he did a what was it? A, yeah, it was an undergraduate dissertation on jealousy and knowledge in Marcel Proust and uh, Jane Austen's Emma. Kind of an interesting choice of uh, topics and, and works, but he's always been extremely eclectic. And it, it was, yeah, I, I was really impressed <laughs> with, with what he did. Uh, always yeah, have been impressed by him and pushed by um, just being around him, really. He's the type of guy I, would, I, re I remember we would just be standing in line and he would just pull out a book. Like he would just always be reading and I would just be like, Oh shit, he's reading. I should be reading too. Like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I'm dead serious. He just, yeah, totally. just being around him and seeing him working hard and being so dedicated, um, honestly pushed me to be a better version of myself. So, um, really respect him and I'm glad we get to bring him on the show. Um, just a couple housekeeping items like Tyler mentioned. Um, if you'd be willing to support us, we'd really appreciate it. You know, um, this is something that we do in our free time and we do it because we enjoy it. Um, but it does cost us about 15 bucks a month to host our website. And, um, if you use the brave browser, the best way that you could support us is to, um, give us your basic attention tokens, uh, at suffermap.com. Um, I'm not paid to say this, but I highly recommend you use the brave browser. If you don't, um, it's a, it's a fantastic browser built on Chrome and it has, the best ad blocking capabilities I've ever experienced in a browser um, in exchange for them blocking ads on the internet. Um, they let you decide how many of their own ads you want to see. They're very unobtrusive little notifications that appear on a, at a regular basis throughout the hour up in the top right corner of your screen. And the more ads that you let them show you, um, the more basic attention tokens you accrue and you can give those basic attention tokens in the browser to creators. Um, on YouTube, on any website that's registered as a brave creator. Um, we're registered. So if you go to suffermap.com and you are in the brave browser, you can click on the little triangle up in the search field and you can give us basic attention tokens. Give us as, uh, as few or as many as you want. We really appreciate it. It does help us cover our costs. Um, if you really want to support us in other ways, um, you can reach out to us at suffermap at protonmail.com and we can work something out. Thanks so much, everybody. Yeah, um, and to um, second what Matthew has said on two counts, our conversation with Nathaniel was super illuminating for me. It was, it's you know, it's very rare to find people like Nathaniel that are, on one hand, so um, so like deeply intelligent and working on such interesting projects and such clever projects, who are also like. Uh, very easy to get along with, you know, that are personable and, you know, like genuinely fun people to be around. You know, Nathaniel is like all of those things. And so it was like a really fun conversation. It was a really illuminating conversation. Um, and it was a really fun project. And I can't wait to see like what else Nathaniel's got going on in his life. Um, I'd also highly recommend the Brave browser. I use it all the time. And it started by the same guys who started uh, Mozilla Firefox, which I was a power user of before I moved to Brave. Um, 
Uh, final notes on the episode itself. You'll notice, uh, especially on my audio, that there are some weird audio uh, fragments and artifacts that we can't get rid of. There are some weird volume issues with the mic that I was using. We've since gotten rid of like the mic that I'm recording on now is a very expensive microphone and is way better than the one that I was using for this episode. But just be uh, take a note of that as you're listening, that those audio fragments are not a problem with your with your audio it's a problem with my recording in addition um nathaniel was recording his side of the audio from sweden and he was recording it off of his uh macbook um microphone which doesn't sound bad it sounds great but you'll hear in the background there are certain points where he's moving around in his chair and he's causing some weird noise issues uh that we can't get, really get rid of um so just be on the lookout for those but aside from that it's a great episode and we're really proud of the work that we did Thanks, everybody. We're going to dive right in. Anyways, this is Suffer Map. Thanks for being here, guys. Um, I'm Matthew. I'm Tyler, and we have uh, our very first guest with us today, our friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel, introduce yourself. Yeah, so I am Nathaniel, um, and I currently... uh live in Sweden and from the US. Uh, I'm studying uh, ancient and medieval philosophy and classical philology here at the moment in a master's program. Um, yeah, what, what, what are we going to do for introductions here? What kind of ingredients go into the recipe? Well, I mean, I could start with uh, Nathaniel was my roommate back in college um, for what, uh, junior year. We, we shared a floor, sophomore year. And then after college, we we moved out and lived in Chicago together. So he and I have a history yeah. going way back. Um, yeah. I think Until you and Tyler a fire just... destroyed <laughs> a fire destroyed our happy little oh, home together. Yeah. Almost two that years was the ago fire. Dang. Yeah. It'd be it's next week, two years ago. Yeah. Man, it was the first crazy. week of March because it was a week after my then girlfriend, now wife, left. Yeah. I think and we all she, secretly she, suspect she had a hand in it, but yeah. Well, you know, she she kindled the flame, anything. so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the the symbolic flames that manifested in yeah. reality. Uh, I love it. Do, do not awaken love until it's time, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was time. <laughs> it was time. I so yeah, and it, I think that Tyler and Nathaniel missed each other barely because Nathaniel was in Oxford the fall of senior year of my senior year of his senior year when tyler right. came and visited wheaton so i think you guys missed each other didn't see yeah each other. i haven't met tyler before yes yeah, so this is our first time interacting yeah well it's a pleasure my guy yeah so we'll see how it yeah. goes you know yeah hopefully we can keep it on track here <laughs> yeah you know no promises but we can try we could try uh where are you studying uh, your master's degree in gothenburg right now so is it the university of gothenburg lit i love that yeah very dope. Tell us about, um, I know you were looking at uh, programs in France for a while. What ended up uh, being the logic of going to Gothenburg instead? Um, yeah, there are a few main reasons. So I was looking at uh, University of Paris um, because they have strong programs in the history and philosophy of science, which is sort of one of my main interests. Um, uh, so that was like my main other choice. Um, and I knew the head of the department there through a connection to uh, the magazine. So I guess oh, another right. background information is I um, currently uh, employed uh, for the Point magazine, and we're sort of 
it's a magazine of the examined life is our sort of mission statement it's sort of bringing like humanities into conversation with uh public life and all that so i'm employed by them yeah. and one of our regular writers who's now starting a podcast for us is the head of a department in uh paris so i got in touch with him after like he wrote for us saying i made sure to email him from the work email saying hey i'm interested in applying <laughs> so then we got on uh, skype and all that but anyway uh i ended up in sweden because the main reason is uh, money. Um, Sweden offered me like a full scholarship thing, which for uh, philosophy is hard to come by. So I thought I would take that up. And then contingent of getting the money is like you have to accept this in 10 days uh, and bind yourself to the program. Um, so, yeah, so I accepted that. And then another thing with the Paris thing, too, is like it was more general history and philosophy of science, whereas here the, the, the department specifically geared toward um, medieval uh, logic and metacognition, which is sort of the niche thing I was trying to find, which like no other institution wow. really studies uh, or has the faculty so rooted in it. So they're, they're doing a lot of work in publishing like critical editions, surrounding commentaries on Aristotle, dealing specifically with like this theme of uh, cognition and logic and um, sort of those themes in the commentary tradition on Aristotle, whether it's the Arabic tradition, Latin tradition. Um, yeah. So what so projects sort of, are you working on right now? So right now um, we're currently, they're doing this or they're training us in translation work. Um, so currently translating some uh, Marsilius of Padua. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, we're writing out some translations of him. Uh, and then in the fall, we would be starting um, our master's thesis. So, uh, which incidentally may may or may not be related to the the topic of the undergraduate thesis. So, interesting. Yeah. Okay. yeah what's uh, what's the what's the thesis that is brewing within you? <laughs> um, it's interesting you use that language. It would be uh, Plato is who I probably focus on. Surprise, um, surprise. Yeah. I'm considering either that or SCOTUS, who's like my other main interest. Um, so I'd be looking at the the sort of the the concept of desire within Plato's work as it relates to like his metaphysics of the 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 dyad. Um, so what would be your I, primary texts for that? So Symposium would be a main one. Um, right. Yeah, the Parmenides would be another one for sort of going to the more metaphysical angle. Okay. Um, Gorgias a little bit. Um, so it, 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 it's very, very rudimentary still, but it's sort of be like diving into sort of the different parts where he talks about uh, the necessity of like limiting one's desires and like exercising self-control and sort of like the, the 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 psychological and anthropological dimensions of desire within the, the larger polity, which he talks a lot of, uh, a lot about in the Republic as well. Right. Yeah, uh, it's a main theme, at least in the yeah. first half of the Republic, I think. Yeah, because yeah, in the beginning, like he describes um, the city of pigs, where people have inflamed desires, um, and like the language is they have too much phlegm, um, so they just like completely. Uh, expose themselves to desires to keep like trying to fulfill them. The desires grow larger. The they're unable to like find happiness, and so it just leads to a complete chaos where 
um, sort of the, the political structure is designed to sort of exacerbate the, the citizens' desires and make them grow larger and larger without being able to fulfill them. They become unhappier and unhappier, and it sort of leads to collapse. Um, stop me if you've heard this one before because we might be living in it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like Plato looked down the passages of time and saw Amazon and Facebook. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it is very fascinating sort of uh, how he looks at sort of the the, the political function of desire um, and sort of how that relates to... Um, our current ecosystem. And, and, I really he, gotta... and that's like the ultimate dystopia for him is like that. <laughs> We're living <laughs> it. I hear like a, a definitely care for social issues in your work, or at least in, in your focus here. Is that like kind of a, a main focus of yours or is that kind of like incidental to what you're, what you're studying? Um, yeah, is it incidental? That's a good question. It, it, it's sort of like, um, an equal relationship, I'd say like sort of like a hermeneutical circle kind of thing. So I'm like, I'm interested in like mm-hmm. the abstract concepts, but usually there's some social implication that I'm interested in too. But then I'm also right. interested in like how social facts uh, build into sort of these more abstract mm-hmm. considerations. Cause like, I, I keep like, I've like, I've been exposed to Foucault and Deleuze. So they say, okay, mm-hmm. well, the abstraction is based on very concrete realities and generated out of empirical things. So I look at things from that angle, but I also understand how the application of abstract things to everyday life in the traditional humanist sense like impacts us too. So it's sort of like a circle. Um, so right. I'm, yeah, I'm interested. I, I always like, keep an eye on sort of the social dimensions alongside the philosophical ones, which I guess is like another thing that Plato does because he's, he, he's always interested in the correspondence of the soul to the, the, the polis. Um, you always see the correspondence both between the structure and the health of the individual soul versus the the larger social context. Right. Yeah, it's right. interesting how how Plato is, extrapolates like how the structure of a healthy soul is actually sort of symmetrically mirrored at the level of a healthy community. That their yeah. community is like a people, literally. Yeah. It's a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, which I think is like it, it's very alien to us in some ways because so much of like the the typical modern philosophical discourse is based on well i don't want to be selfish so i, I have to like zero sum game between individual and communal benefit like you always like have to sacrifice something for the greater good um so you have like the ayn rand sector saying like okay it's individual benefit against communal uh good or whatever and then like on the other hand, you have people who say we need to sacrifice our own individual desires for the greater good, like utilitarianism and all that. But it's like it's a false dichotomy. Um, there are some cases where you do have to like limit yourself or decrease uh, your own happiness for that for the greater good. But there's like I believe overall a large correspondence between the two. It's not like it's not like we're designed to not work together uh, in some capacity. I'm really. I'm. It's a really good point. I, I'm gonna have to consult with you about my. I'm working on a chapter right now in my thesis where I'm. I'm trying to look at. Uh, Plato as kind of a representative of Freud's the pleasure principle of mm-hmm. like the good is pleasurable and creatures always move towards the good and the bad is pain and creatures move mm-hmm. away from pain. Um, yeah. Where and Freud sort of within his beyond the pleasure principle starts to kind of grope after this notion of the death instinct or the death drive yeah. where yeah. that problemizes that problematizes the pleasure principle says like okay maybe that's actually not yeah. an accurate description of how human beings behave 
Um, yeah. And so I'm, that's kind of going to be my first chapter for setting up some of my other work, but I'd be curious to just get your take at, at, on the face of it. Like, do you think that um, Plato does embody that pleasure principle that I'm kind of getting at? Cause I don't want to like grossly misrepresent Plato, but mm-hmm. I feel like th- he has, the, I mean, like Aristotle, what well, is his student, you know? And like yeah. Aristotle very clearly has this notion of the good as that, which is pleasant and, Creatures always like are, you know, rationally move towards what they believe is best for them and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 It's it's a good question. Um, Yeah. On on where's the computer directs you? So on a side note before that, so that was actually like one of the main reasons I like proved so much when I first encountered him is he is like completely critiquing the Fletcher principle in almost every capacity. Um, So when I was like reading and sort of getting started on this thesis, Jonathan Lear came to uh, mm, our campus yeah. um, and he was talking about the, 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 the harmony between Plato and psychoanalysis and Freud. And I was just, I was confused by it. So I went up to him afterwards. I'm like, so what about cases where there's um, sort of cognition that leads to unhappiness? Like the more knowledge you have, the unhappier you get. Um, which is like sort of the opposite of what like, Plato would say and like what he was saying that Plato and Freud were saying. He's like, um, you have to read the Ratman case because that's a case of pathological cognition where it's the, 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 that's the, how you fall off the way in which knowledge does not lead to happiness. I have not read it yet, admittedly, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't really persuaded by his response. So that was one reason I was so interested in Proust. Um, and yeah, I think with Plato, um, he does sort of seem to fall into like that that simple sort of pleasure principle model. Um, I have to read him more closely, I think, as I research him more to see if I can come up with a, a creative misreading to rehabilitate him from <laughs> that sort of <laughs> classic um, banality. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of creative misreadings. Keep, I'm like keep I'm always. I'm always uh, afraid of doing a reading of Plato because I feel like there's a thousand Plato scholars looking to pounce on me from oh, like yeah. a million directions <laughs> with a, like a why I'm misreading him. So it's yeah. like a little intimidating, but um, I think I'm going to risk it nonetheless. It, it, it's, I mean, I think it's more fun to make claims with Plato because even when they do pounce on you, like no one agrees on the role of Socrates within the dialogues, the, the, the relative equivalence or similarity between Socrates and Plato, what Plato actually thought, um, and like what dialogue is he supposed to represent? If it's just like he's playing around with ideas or knows he's a cohesive systematic philosophy mm-hmm. or like, no, you're supposed to work through the works and then like you, you arrive at the end at like Operia or something. So no matter like what angle you take, um, it, you just have scholars trying to fit you within sort of their interpretive paradigm of like, oh, this is what Plato's doing, uh, which like there's no general consensus on, which is sort of one of mm-hmm. the beauties of him is sort of the ambiguity. Um, and that's something Socrates does well too, is keep up the ambiguity in some sense. You know, I, um, I think that going back to Proust, he really encaptures the idea, that psychoanalytic concept of jouissance, of the pleasure in pain, of the pleasure in, self-renunciation and the pleasure mm. in your own sort of destruction that yeah. is i think very human you know yeah 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 and it's funny that it's so um under described for so long 
Um, I mean, I still have to do like more reading to various traditions within the West, but it's just like, yeah, the pleasure principle has sort of held this hegemony among most teachings for so long, um, even though like, it seems kind of intuitive to me that some people just seek out destruction. Um, I guess like sort of the Augustinian tradition is really good at highlighting that at least. Um, but within the philosophy outside of theology, it seems to be something that's not as discussed as you'd think it would be. Yeah, I think it's been under-theorized in philosophy and it's kind of only lived in the religious realm. Um, yeah. And that's part of what my thesis is is getting at. But this is this is about you, so I'd rather we can talk about it another time. <laughs> um, talking about Proust, we could switch to um, uh, we could switch to your thesis, which was kind of the primary reason we wanted to bring you on. Just discuss um, your thesis that you wrote mm-hmm. uh, as a part of your English honors program in, in college. Um, for those at home who don't know, we will post the link, but it's called Desiring Knowledge. The Textual and Psychological Dimensions of Jealousy in Marcel Proust and Jane Austen. Um, would you give us, uh, would you give us kind of like a brief succinct, like what were you trying to do with this paper? And if you could give us a little backstory on like how you came into this thesis and how you came to this question, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Um, so admittedly, I have not read it since I for, like, defended it two years ago. Hey, no worries, uh, it, it's sort of the, the principle like an actor does not watch their own movies, maybe. Because <laughs> yeah. um, you criticize um, what you see. Um, but I'll start with the, the background story. So this would have been uh, in 2017. Yeah, beginning of 2017, I was sort of like, trying to think of, okay, I want a concept for, I want to do an English thesis. I knew that for sure. Or it was going to be English or philosophy. And then I quickly realized like with philosophy, you can't do any interesting things with a thesis. So I went to, because I always want to do like a literary kind of like deep psychological uh, analysis where you can just like go off in a, any direction you want without really a care for close tight-knit argumentation because it's so slow to do that. Um, and I'm still, I'm still young and reckless. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I was actually taking a, a British modernism course in the spring where we ended up reading Proust because he's like very influential within the modernist movement, uh, in Anglo phone literature. So we read the first volume. Um, and I was like, I was very interested, um, sort of what was going on here. Um, so I wasn't like quite clear on a, a topic, um, but like what really struck out to me is like this pre- this pleasure principle part, um, sort of the the negative aspects of uh, erotic desire and love, um, which so runs so counter to most cultural narratives about um, you know the Hollywood love you fall in love and you're happy kind of thing, um, and then there's like there's some deconstruction of it, but it's very like it's not really picked apart that much within mainstream culture. Um, so I was like kind of intrigued by it because I hadn't really, be, hadn't really been exposed to it before. So yeah, I, was, I, I ended up like reading through the rest of uh, Bruce volumes throughout the spring and summer. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to write a thesis on this guy, um, specifically focusing on uh, this sort of what I thought was uh, ingenious description and storytelling revolving around uh, the nature of love and desire and it's also and he kept like he keeps tying it to knowledge uh and research um and it's like an obsessive 
researcher myself. I was like, <laughs> this, this really strikes a, Very appropriate. A, 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 yeah, a tone with me. So, um, yeah, I spent a lot of that summer, summer 2017, digging deeper into that. Uh, and then I did a, a exchange program with Oxford in the fall where one of the papers ended up writing was sort of on um, the the architecture of Jane Austen's masculinity ethics. Um, Interesting. So she's a virtue ethicist like through and through. Yeah. Um, so like the paper was an attempt to like, catalog different things. And um, so I was reading like, through a number of novels. I think I get all of them. But one of them that struck me a lot when I was reading was Emma. Um because in that novel, there's a lot of jealousy that's factored in um, to sort of the dynamics between Mr. Knightley and Emma, um, Harriet and others. So I, I, and it was like a completely different description of uh, jealousy because yeah. Jane Austen's a very psychological writer, but it's from a much more exterior perspective. Um, but it's no less like poignant in its ability to describe it. She's like so much better um, revealing or like implying psychological states in Ernest Hemingway and his sort of robots can. Um, yeah. I, I'm not a fan of Ernest Hemingway at all. Oh, really? And I don't understand. I, I, I fail to understand people who are, um, even after people say, well, haven't you heard of iceberg theory? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you keep telling it to me, but I don't know with him. Um, but anyway, with Jane Austen, yeah. So I was really interested in, um, Emma, uh, so when I, I got back to the U.S. after the semester finished, um, my supervisor was like, well, it, it's really better if you can like compare Proust to somebody else. Um, so I hadn't really even thought of Jane Austen at that point as like a, uh, having a place in the thesis. But when she's like insisting, like, no, you need to have like two different authors you're like, dialoguing with. So I was like, okay, let's do this. So at that point, then I was just like cutting it down, trying to add more focus um, and things like that. So then I focused more on the relationship of um, jealousy between the two and then uncovering sort of the, the, the hermeneutical implications of that within both because Marcel Proust is very overtly about scholarly interpretation. I mean, like in Search of Lost Time in French is a la recherche, like it's the research of lost time. Um, and it's focus so much on sort of like an, an academic kind of man uh, it's very male and it's sort of perspective like trying to dive into like finding this truth deep underneath um and then jane austen is more concerned about like the social dimensions of interpretation um and how you can interpret within social situations and a lot of her um novels deal with or sort of like um educational texts in a way in the same way as like play to play as dialogues can be taken and they sort of like teach you how like about reading and social interactions in very interesting ways. Um, so I sort of like was na- boiling it down further and further to that. And um, yes, yeah, so then it just became about on the one hand, um, jealousy in Proust and Jane Austen, and then its relationship to knowledge, the desire for knowledge and communication uh, between those two authors. Um, so sort of the structure that evolved from that's like a dialogue. We start with Proust. Here's what he says about uh, jealousy um and he's sort of uh fatalistic and uh in schopenhauerian i hadn't read schopenhauer at that point i mean i still haven't but i've read more about him um and i realized like he would have played such a big much bigger role in the thesis if i had known sooner so yeah talking about the the fatalism of jealousy looking at how jane austen treats the topic 
how she offers a solution, uh, sort of an ethical solution to jealousy, and then re- returning to Proust and seeing like, oh, if we take James Austin's solution of like communication um, and trust, what sort of happens there, and seeing like how there is no communication between the the, the actors within the novel, uh, and sort of like seeing the ba- breakdown that occurs there. So that's sort of the basic structure. Yeah, I'll admit, like initially reading the text back in senior year, I was, it took me about a third of the way through before the pieces clicked. And I was like, oh, jealousy is about knowledge, really. And the way that um, Swan fails to be able to um, arrive at reconciliation is this analogy for the solipsism of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And like the ability of Emma and Mr. Knightley to come to a, um, a, a some understanding is kind of this analogy for the productivity of dialogue and hermeneutics yeah. and yeah. the necessity of a dialogue partner. Um, yeah. And so, when that hit me, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I see what he's doing." It's like a, it's like a proxy war between yeah. between two different epistemologies. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, would it be helpful to provide some sort of plot background to either novel or maybe Proust? Because that's sort of a complicated thing. Or should we just like pretend that the audience knows what we're talking about here? I, I would say maybe instead of giving just like a background, because I, I don't think when I was reading, it, I don't think that actually like a background or a general pl- plot was necessary because you don't okay. really get into it in the paper either. But I would love to hear kind of like a, a synopsis of what exactly you end up doing between the two in, in the dialogue between Proust and Austin. Um, yeah. 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 So to go into greater detail there, um, you have to forgive me if I have like misremembering certain details of uh, the thesis. Um, so a lot of volume one, there's a volume one is divided into three parts. The middle chunk is the only chunk in the entire seven volume uh, in Search of Lost Time, where it's a different character protagonist. And that's Swan, who's um, sort of this middle-aged French bachelor. Um, he's He's got the aesthetics down. He's got the intellectual stuff down. He's very well-respected in society. Um, and he's sort of, he's sort of like a, some sort of a heartthrob, uh, if you will, um, among the French elite at the time. And at one point, he's introduced to sort of like the um, this woman who's about thirty or so. Um, and like the book's very clear; she's like not particularly interesting. She's kind of boring. Um, she's not even that attractive. Um, but there's like there's a particular th- way in which they met that sort of like triggered in his imagination, sort of um, an admiration in him. Um, and there's this, so he like meets her. Um, and at first he doesn't even see this, like, he's kind of like, oh, she's kind of boring, but they like, meet a few times, like in different social events. And by the third or fourth time, he's kind of like struck by her in some way. Um, so then he develops this deep infatuation for her. Um, and there's this beautiful moment where he sort of has this Botticelli picture in his uh, house, uh, sort of like a, a miniature picture. And she kind of vaguely resembles the woman in the picture. So he just spends his day looking at the the Botticelli picture and trying to transpose her features 
Um, but it, it, and he's like trying to transpose. Okay, I'm trying to remember who she is. But what's happening is he's actually transposing the Botticelli onto her and turning her into this like ethereal angelic figure. Um, so he like falls so deeply for her. It like, really like it, it, with the how fantasy sort of fills in the lack in the other, and how like fantasy allows you to kind of stage this relationship to the other that yeah d- doesn't have the normal. Uh, lack of a typical relationship yeah Yeah. you can all you need the screen of fantasy to be able to relate to something exactly yeah so interesting you use this really interesting term here as well to refer to this a little bit later on in your paper you call it aesthetic revisionism yeah and i love that i'm I'm not sure if i after reading Bergson, that's a good idea now, <laughs> but because uh, he, he he doesn't like the idea of reconstruction after the fact. But yeah, it's sort of like I think how many people with overactive imaginations function is sort of well, you encounter something, but then later on, and later on, you're just like reconstructed according to your aesthetic um, principles and desires. And it's like what you're interested in because you want to like no one wants to have a boring life. If I don't think you can admit like. I am a boy or most people admit I'm a boring person. You want to right. electrify and illuminate and add description and things um, to your life. And then like in a social media environment that is even more intensified. Um, so like people are trying to self narrate even more and more epic and grand fantasies, which is what the Swan does too. Um, yeah. So it's sort of like you, you want to inject aesthetic flavored everything, but then what can often happen is if you're, too idealistic and um so to speak like wishy-washy then you sort of like chase after um various um red herrings or things that like are not practically helpful to you or even like realistically like she's not beautiful she's not interesting she's just an average woman who finds herself in like the lower ends of upper society uh and he just like spends his whole life obsessing or spends like 10 years obsessing over her. Um, and I, I, one other thing to add to is the whole book in search of lost time in the prologue, it says like, I, this is what ha- this is what I'm thinking to myself as I lie in bed at night because I can't sleep. Um, so the, it's sort of the frame of this entire seven volume work is he's saying, I, I like it, the, the first sentence is um, for a long time, I went to bed early um, and sort of the first few pages, there's like three or four pages, I believe. Um, he's just sort of saying like, yes, yeah, I'm lying awake at night. I can't sleep. He's, he's like a chronic insomniac. He never left his apartment. Um, and this is like all the thoughts that come to him as he lies in bed at night. And it's sort of this obsessiveness, his obsessive narrating, his obsessive detail. Interesting. As sort of his nighttime companion in like the darkness of the night. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like the biography behind Proust, but he was an extreme hypochondriac. He like, and he also lived in one of the wealthiest families in France at the time. So it's like, imagine like this billionaire uh, hypochondriac guy who really just wants to be an author. He spends his whole life just wanting to be an author. Um, so near the end of his life, when he's around in his thirties or forties, I believe, um, he just like completely cuts himself off from all society to like write the novel. He, he adds, this is in like 1900, 1910. He soundproofs his apartment by adding like tons of materials to cushion the sound. Cause he's like the, the traffic from the street outside just like distracting me from my novel. 
he gets like, extreme personality traits, which it's very, um, you know, tortured genius kind of uh, wow. affectation. That's He's a vibe. Like, yeah. Um, and then what, one other um, interesting tidbit I'll throw in here too is that, um, so it's just generally agreed on that Marcel Proust was gay, which is interesting because all the characters in the book are hetero, or the main love interest in volumes one, five, and six are heterosexual. Four deals a lot with homosexual uh, love and sort of the distinctions between the two. But he had his, he fell in love with his chauffeur um, when he was in his 40s or so. And so it's just to illustrate sort of the, like, it's like a good, like, uh, microcosm of Proust. Um, he falls in love with his chauffeur and his chauffeur is like at one day he's kind of like playing it up even though he's married to a woman he's like he's just kind of playing it up to like get attention and he's like you're not kind of interested in airplanes so marcel Proust buys the chauffeur an airplane like a per, like, this is in 1910 or so like when they were just starting right so he had his like right. before world war one he had an airplane um and what ended up happening is the chauffeur is like flying off the french coast with like and he crashes and dies. Oh no! Yeah, so it like, this destroys Marcel Proust because he just like he was like deeply infatuated with this man, and then he bought him in this airplane that he ends up killing himself with by accident. Like, um, it's just like this insane <laughs> anecdote, which I think like s- says so much. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, that's so funny. Oh my god, little Proustie boy. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the OG sad boys for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's really up there um, in terms of sad boys. Yeah. We (laughs) should do an episode just on philosophical or literary sad boys. Because there's Kierkegaard, Nietzsche. Would Nietzsche be on that list? He's pretty sad. Yeah, he is a sad boy. He got cucked pretty hard. Oh, absolutely. He's, Kierkegaard he's, cucked himself, actually. I know. It's Isn't like, that the has, craziest thing? He has no excuse. Like, he has no, no one excuse. to blame. Man, I love Kierkegaard. Except God, I suppose. I don't know. Except God. <laughs> God made me do it. Why God did God make me so smart? <laughs> <laughs> what a he's, horrible like, problem. Those photos of him, too. Or they're not photos, but like those drawings of him. Oh, my yeah. God, he looks insufferable. Just oh, absolutely no. up his own butt, dude. Oh, so oh. One thing we read in our uh, program recently was sort of is quote unquote an autobiography of Abelard. Oh, I did not no. know this existed. It's called what an insufferable his, ass. It's called Historia Calamitatum, a history of calamities. <laughs> and it's just him saying, he goes through the whole book saying how smart he is and how misunderstood he is. But actually kind of sucks like reading like all the things that happened to him. And he did like revolutionize just about every discipline in existence, like logic, music, university system. But he 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 got like castrated. Ooh. Um yeah. It, it was just it's this really funny funny story as he relates it in the, the book. Um <laughs> so the uncle of the girl, he like promises to marry her, and then someone else kinda like who doesn't like Abelard says like, he's probably not going to do it. So the uncle gets pretty mad. He sends some thugs to where um, Abelard is sleeping at night. And they just like, they chain him down, snip him off. Um, and then like run off in the night. And and he says, it's a guy like a roundabout way. Cause like, how do you describe this? Um, <laughs> and still be and polite about it. Um, 
But then he says, like, the next morning, everyone gathered outside his house in the village, and they started crying with him. They were weeping for his pain. <laughs> and just like, <laughs> that would be such a weird experience. <laughs> you have your, your uh, testicles chopped off, and everyone's there, like, sorry, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he ends up, like, he's not only excommunicated, he's, like, stuck wandering around. And then he's still, like, teaching in the wilderness to people. And then the Pope says, you're not even allowed to teach. All his books were like, kind of like, burned in like circulation or whatever, um, and so he just sort of died just like after that. So that was, I think like he's one of the OGs to Ad Boys in what was like eleven hundred or the twelfth yep. century, I think. Add him to the uh, list. Let's go. Yeah, he's up there for sure. Yeah, but he's terrible because he's not a Thomist. <gasps> he was a he was a nominalist. He was a nominalist, bro. <laughs> so basically, what you're telling me is he, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, pretty much, he invented capitalism and, every, and yeah. postmodernism. Right. Uh, <laughs> That's the reason why we are bowling alone today because of Abelard. Because Abelard yeah. was bowling alone, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Have you guys seen that Thomas <laughs> meme? Uh, oh man, I I need I need it. I've I put it on the Discord. We're like, it's like a timeline of philo- of philosophy of the history of Western philosophy, but from the Thomistic standpoint. And there's like one part where like it says like, uh, who's that? Uh, Scotus ruins everything for no reason is like one part in it. It's just got like all these like weird like yeah that only a Thomist would take seriously, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, and then on the other hand, there's uh, there's Zizek's reading of the history of philosophy, which is philosophy with ban- began with Kant and was completed with Hegel. Right. <laughs> right. He's like he's like philosophy only happened for seventy years <laughs> in Germany. <laughs> he's like it started with Kant and it was completed with Hegel. Um that's such a Hegelian thing too. The particularity of the the absolute is synthesized within this yep. one moment. Yeah. Yep. And for for him, I mean really it was the only philosophers who ever existed were Kant, Fichte, Schelling and Hegel. Those are the only philosophers who ever exist in everything it, after it's sort that. There's sort of the beauty to that, I think. Unearthing. <laughs> it's great. But yeah. the uh, back to the point of jealousy and Zizek, actually, I love that um, Zizek points out this great thing about um, uh, that like Lacan says about how you could be pathological and be right at the same time. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, he says mm-hmm. that a, a jealous husband is pathological even if he's right. Yeah, and that there's there's this interesting structure to like jealousy's fixation mm-hmm. on knowledge, on this need to know, on this yeah. thing that like will not make it happy, and yet it cannot, uh, it it just persists in pursuing it is is pathological, even if it's right, even yeah. if the knowledge that it acquires is true or useful or confirms what it knew. It mm-hmm. will never be happy because of this pathological fixation that it has. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it, I, I think it's like one of the interesting or salient points from like Foucault's history of madness is sort of the the automatic equivalence of pathological being false. Um, yeah. Which, like, if you even stop to think about it for like half a second, you're like, actually, that there's no reason why, at least in my mind, like why those two have to be equated um like being pathological and right it's like it happens so much um i mean it's not healthy um but you you can also be unhealthy and right too yep um yeah take kierkegaard for example right <laughs> right 
Yeah, Taylor, um, I know you had a couple questions um, that you were sharing with me before the podcast. I felt like were really good. As maybe, yeah. you, maybe you wanted to ask some of those to Nathaniel. Well, I yeah. So initially, we were talking. Well, before we got we got a little sidetracked there, but we were talking about um, basically like the general idea of your thesis and kind of how Austin and Proust were uh, interacting. I think my question mm-hmm. has more to do with Austin. So pick up on yeah. that track again and kind of because I know you were talking a little bit about Proust, but. We haven't gotten to like precisely what how you were interacting those two writers together. Yeah. Um, so while Proust is so fixated on interiority and sort of obsessiveness within the person, um, and the entire like text of In Search of Lost Time is just like pages upon pages and pages of endless descriptions, images, metaphors, and rich te- uh, rich um, like analogies and like the sentences themselves are endless, like tons of commas and semicolons, which sort of just like matches like the, like the, the, the phrase I like to, um, or use in that piece just at least I remember is frenetic prose. It just, yeah. like, it, it, he's so agitated and it comes through almost nonstop. You feel, sometimes you just feel stressed reading him, mm-hmm. even like when he's like going through like sort of his exuberant praise of like beautiful places or whatever vacation places um or like the beach um there's still like just this like the constant agitation and energy to it um it's it's not still okay at all um, <laughs> right, right, right and then on, on the other hand austin's presentation is so distinctly different because you only get glimpses into the thoughts of um the characters it's told from sort of this um limited omniscience um so it's usually you see a lot of the external actions that are happening with like some of the thoughts mainly from like emma and occasionally from other characters too it's you you get some insight into her thoughts and what she's thinking it's always about interpreting the external presentation of what's happening in the situation um and I think that like that also corresponds a lot to her emphasis on sort of the social nature of interpretation and the fact that we can't get past the other person and what they're presenting mm-hmm. at some level. Uh, so what she ends up offering at the end of um, Emma is she says like, well, the the solution to jealousy is just trust. Like you really, there is no way to predict or understand or speculate what the other person's thinking. It's just impossible. Um, as much as you could try, uh, as much as Proust does try, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you can't predict what's going on past that sort of that presentation. You can try to read it, sure, and maybe get some guesses, but like it, autom- it ultimately comes down to having this sort of interpersonal trust in the only way that any sort of relationship of any kind, whether it's romantic or um a friendship or even a community is just built on the nature of trusting that people mean what they say um and not really going beyond that and trying to like guess intentions or try to de- deconstruct what they're saying um well on the other hand proust is really wrapped up in sort of predicting what other people are doing or saying or thinking um he's sort of like jumping back and forth between all of that and, but it, all of it occurs within the context of his subjective imagination there is no confirmation really of a lot of these things that happen. Um, and what's really funny about the Swan thing is Swan is like, I'm so obsessed about um, this girl Odette having an affair, um, especially in the first volume. Uh, and then it sort of like fades as he like falls out of love with her eventually. Um, but then when he's like in his, is like a couple decades later, 
and and this is in I believe volume seven, he's talking to some some other like associate of Odette's long after they're married and they have a kid. Um, and he's like in his sixties now. And the woman says, Oh yeah, she was having an affair with you all those years ago when you were really worried about it. Even though the entire novel, it's sort of his suspicions are treated as unjustified. Uh, it's sort of like the pathological right thing. Mm-hmm. He is treated as like fundamentally unjustified and sort of this crazy obsessive behavior. Um, where he just, it was crazy, but he was right. Yeah, but he was right in the end, which I think is a, such a funny confirmation yeah. um, that is actually revealed in the plot later through external conversation. Um, mm-hmm. It's not through him being able to pick up on clues and do the detective work to put it all together. That never leads anywhere. Um, and right before that passage of the revelation, it, it mentions like even decades later when he grew bored, sometimes he would try to like, what was the phrase that he was like, um, reopen his detective case, like try to like put together the pieces of the affair together again, just not because he was interested in it, but just out of habit because he was bored. Um, and he wanted to like rekindle sort of that feeling of jealousy after it had died out because it sort of gave him life and passion, but he no longer had that um, in his 50s and 60s. So he sort of just like mechanically goes through like, the, 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 the mannerisms of jealousy. So it's then like when mental he... Mental masturbation, yeah, basically. Yeah, he's like, like he's trying to rekindle this sort of like intense desire that's just what he yeah. wants is like rekindle that and then the woman reveals like oh yeah he, she had an affair like all those years ago it, like revealing everything he had like been trying to find for decades and he just doesn't really care um because it's never really about finding out it's just about like he wants to play this role okay and we're gonna end the episode there uh really great conversation the entirety of the conversation between matthew and i and nathaniel was about an hour and a half. So we've decided to split it into two episodes and we're going to end this one here because the conversation begins moving into a different direction from here. We begin talking about consumer mythologies and and in particular, we begin talking about language and the use of language within these two texts. So we hope you guys liked what you heard and we're really excited to meet you again uh, in the following week where we have part two of our conversation with Nathaniel. 